Hi, this is Monique Garrett, and I want to welcome you to the Waze Pharmaceutical Services Ways of Working podcast. Our first podcast is a discussion of emergency use authorizations during the pandemic with Dr. Nancy Smirkanich. Nancy is an assistant professor from the University of Southern California School of Pharmacy in Los Angeles. We covered a lot in our conversation, so much so that we ended up breaking it up into two separate podcasts. So what you'll hear next is the first half of our discussion. Here, Nancy explains what an emergency use authorization is and how it's being employed in the current COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're talking about emergency use authorizations, and our guest is Nancy Smirkanich. Nancy and I have worked together at several companies on the industry and the vendor side of the business, and I'm really looking forward to our time together. Nancy, to start, I'm going to ask you to give us a brief overview of your background, your regulatory experience, and what you are doing now. Thanks, Monique, and thanks for inviting me today. So uh, what have I done in the past and how did it get me here today? That's actually a whole podcast in and of itself, probably. Um, so I should start with what I currently am and my current qualifications is actually I am, I have my doctorate in regulatory science and I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of Regulatory and Quality Sciences uh, that is housed within the School of Pharmacy at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. Um, I came to academia very late in my life, in, in my career, after over 30 years in industry. Um, I started my career uh, working actually in the vaccine manufacturing area of Merck um, in 1984 um, and proceeded to spend about nine years at Merck before I left to be a actually to be a stay-at-home mom, but also an independent consultant, which I did for uh, seven years. And then I joined um, Octagon Research Solutions, uh, where I worked for 12 years. And um, at the time that Octagon was being acquired, um, I, you know, I had a decision to make about what I wanted to do with the rest of my career. And I decided that there was a there's a whole lot I had learned from some very wonderful colleagues over the years, and it seemed a shame to have it locked inside my head um, and not being used. And so um, I was approached by the University of Southern California to join their faculty. Um, it did require me, however, to go back to school and get a doctorate, um, which I began in uh, 2012. I finished my doctorate actually November of um, 2015. So it took me a little over three years um, and um, joined the faculty at USC uh, in my current role after that. And so I've been a professor for about four and a half years in our, uh, in our, in our department and I very much enjoy it. I still do a, a little bit of independent consultant, but my teaching load right now is such that I really can't handle uh, any, any clients. So I'm really happy to share what I know in, in this venue. In, in lieu of doing that. So it's interesting, you have actually done the opposite of what, what most folks do. <laughs> yeah, for anyone who knows me, they're probably not surprised by that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I did do things a little bit backwards, but I have to say that I think one of the 
things that makes me um, an effective instructor, if, if I can, you know, be so bold as to say that, is that I do have a lot of experiences um, and a lot of colleagues actually that I, um, I shamelessly ask to uh, lecture in some of my classes as guest lecturers. But I think that the totality of my experience um, with working it with regulators, not just here, but um, you know other other parts of the world as well, um, actually informs my teaching and um, you know gives me a lot of practical experience um, that I can share with my students. Well, we're going to take advantage of that practical experience today. <laughs> so um, when we when you and I first started talking about this topic, it seemed like it was something that was. Um, sort of timely, relevant um, in the current pandemic. So let's just get right into it. Can you tell us exactly what an emergency use authorization is? Yeah, th th thank you for these questions about, uh, I know a lot of people actually have a bit of COVID-19 information fatigue um, as well as Zoom fatigue, um, but I do think that they're important questions to be to be asked and, and answered as best I can, knowing that, again, my disclaimer is that I'm not a, a regulator, um, um, but I have been working within the framework that, that FDA has laid out, which is uh, the emergency use authorization uh, process, and, and for people who don't understand what that is, it's important for me as an educator to draw the distinction between emergency use authorization and a product approval because they are not the same thing. Um, the the uh, EUA is specifically designed when there has been a chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear threat, so something called CBRN, CBRN, um, that, that constitutes a, a public health and a national security emergency. That has to happen, um, and, and uh, the legal basis for that lies within the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and it, um, a, a public health emergency must be declared which of course it was, and um, uh, the emergency use authorization uh, process enacted after that. And that specifically allows for medical countermeasures. So if you see that uh, initials MCM, um, we're specifically talking about medical countermeasures. And what medical countermeasures are is it's the government's um, provision to allow unapproved um, uh, products to be used in an emergency situation, um, such as a pandemic. And um, the, the different kind and it's not just it's not just you know drugs i think that people may be associating it with with drugs um but in fact most of the emergency use authorizations that have been allowed have not been for, for drugs or treatments actually um uh, but it can be the the eua's can be for diagnostic tests for personal protective equipment for treatments and for preventative measures such as vaccines and this is when there are no available alternatives. And so that's one of the, the things that you have to actually show. Um, there's actually a whole guidance on this that was written, uh, uh, actually was started uh, in the uh, 2015-2016 time frame approved um, by FDA and published in 2017 that specifically talks about emergency use authorizations. But again, I want to draw the distinction that getting an emergency use authorization is not the same thing as getting an approval. So when we talk about specifically about treatments and about vaccines, um, it's very important for people to understand that 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 does not mean that the studies 
and the approval um, is a given. In fact, you actually can go in with preliminary data for an emergency use authorization, but you would not get a full approval um, until you have met the threshold for approval for a treatment or a vaccine, which typically relies on randomized control trials um, that are done. You know, again, we're we're accelerating a lot of those those pathways, um, but you still have to meet the threshold for approval, which is showing that your product is safe and effective. So, but it is an accelerated pathway. Yeah, it is an accelerated, and it it is an, and it has been amazing to. Um, but it's very different than some of the expedited pathways that are regulatory pathways, which um, you know it's not the same thing as breakthrough therapy or accelerated approval or priority review or fast track, those are <clears throat> um, FDA expedited programs for serious conditions, which are all important, um, but all have different um, qualification criteria and different uses. But an emergency use authorization is specific to these medical countermeasures for a, in this case, a biological threat, as a, such as a pandemic. Um, but the other expedited pathways um, can be for treatments for conditions that uh, meet a serious unmet medical need for serious conditions. It doesn't necessarily have to be life-threatening, but it needs to show that there's no um, other you know, alternatives available. So those, those pathways all still exist, but different from the emergency use authorization pathway, which is really just to be able to um, uh, to get, and again, the emergency use authorizations and FDA's reaction to it has been um, has been extraordinary um, because once these things, once these measures get put into place, FDA resources things differently, and you see that um, just in terms of the the speed at which they're issuing guidance, um, the turnaround times that they're providing for um, protocol review, the pre-IND consultation that they've opened up, not just to companies, but also to researchers, people who are in academic or medical settings, such as the one I work in. Um, I, had a, I had a very positive interaction with FDA earlier this year, um, working on a convalescent plasma study. I mean, I, I heard back from FDA 15 minutes, for, you know, for, for questions, and I think they reviewed our protocol just in an extraordinary amount of time. It might have even been less than 24 hours. So, so again, they're, they're able to do, um, uh, to do things in, an, in just an unprecedented way. They don't have necessarily have uh, extraordinary commitments in that regard. They don't have any specific timelines they have to meet, but they are prioritizing it. Basically. They are, yeah, they are prioritizing them. Um, you know, and it and the prioritization across the. Remember that it, this goes across centers, because as you're starting to think about, well, vaccines. Um, and blood products are housed within CBER, the Center for Biologic Evaluation and Research. The, uh, the treatments, typically the drug treatments, even if they're a repurposed drug, so a drug that was uh, approved for you know, something else or even in development for something else, those will go through the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. But then if you look at uh, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE and ventilators and in vitro diagnostics, that's all housed within the Center for um, uh, Devices and Radiological Health. So these are things, these are, you know, almost, um, uh, you know, across all of the centers, a lot of them involving multiple centers um, working on these uh, these initiatives. And, and to date, the metrics have been 
pretty impressive. Uh, the last ones I looked at were issued at the end of September, so just a few weeks ago. Um, there were over 550 drug development programs. Uh, over, over half of them were in late stage, and I'll talk a little bit about how industry is also reacting to some of this. Um, they have, FDA has reviewed over 350 clinical trial protocols. They have issued five emergency use authorizations that are for treatments. They're not exactly the treatments that necessarily you might think of, and we can talk a little bit about um, what those uh, you know, treat, EUAs for treatments are. Um, and within the device area, you know, the initial response for C from CDRH, really they had to focus on um, an emergency use authorization for PPE, um, which they actually had through August. They were focused also early days on ventilators um, and um, making expedited pathways for um, uh, changes to the engineering of ventilators. Um, there was a lot of manifold splitting and things like that, so that you could use one ventilator for multiple people because, you know, again, early days of, of severe response to the virus was that most people ended up being put on mechanical ventilation, so there was a focus on that. And then, of course, there has been quite a bit of issues with in vitro diagnostics. The sheer number of um, emergency use authorizations that were uh, enacted for that and, and some of the missteps, um, both on the part of the government via the CDC, but also um, on the part of industry and, and local medical centers trying to get testing capacity up to you know what it was envisioned to be that that had missteps right so anytime you're developing a in vitro diagnostic to determine you know whether someone is currently infected or whether they have a you know past infected infection you know there was quite a call for that to do in order to do some of the tracing that was necessary not not all of this has gone smoothly but you know certainly it's it's been an extraordinary response and there's just been some you know, there, as I mentioned, the, the pre-IND consultation, um, FDA actually, CDER, uh, uh, sorry, had a, they've also, uh, FDA and NIH have been working together on something called ACTIVE, the Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines, so working hand-in-hand -hand with the NIH on that. Um, there have been use of master protocols, so writing one protocol um, and getting, you know, getting that through an IRB and being able to use that for different kinds of interventions. I, there was an interleukin-6 trial, a convalescent plasma trial, all of which were done with master protocols. And then you have to think about all the other clinical trials that we normally were doing that weren't COVID-related. You know, FDA also had to provide a lot of guidance and instruction for companies in terms of, you know, what could be, be moved to a virtual environment, you know, the idea of decentralized clinical trials, allowing shipment of investigational product directly to patients uh, or subjects, um, not necessarily to, you know, brick and mortar sites. And so there's just been, I mean, it's almost hard to, <laughs> to keep track of just, you know, how much has gone on um, in that in that space and one of i think some of the interesting things actually there's an effort i got a a request to uh, join an effort called not going back hashtag not going back uh, some of the ordinary measures that have been uh you know have arisen out of the this response to covid um have actually been really efficient and um there is a there i think you'll see some carryover 
you know, once this is under control, that there are going to be people who said, you know what, we made this work during the pandemic and it was maybe more patient centric. Um, you know, maybe it was more efficient in terms of resources on the on the sponsor side. You know, maybe let's look at this more carefully afterwards and see, you know, what of what did we learn here that could be preserved and, and moved forward. And one of those, and one of the things that I did want to mention is this um, idea that our, our typical way we look at clinical trials and moving them from phase one, you know, early studies, pharmacokinetics, basic safety information to a phase two, where we look at what our, you know, potential endpoints could be and how to measure efficacy through to your big phase three studies. We've really kind of consolidated that into some novel um, protocols, which is, you know, instead of taking this, you know, extraordinarily long time, six to seven years just for the clinical piece and compressing that as people have seen how, how much it, well, I don't think people necessarily knew how long it took before, but now that they do, they want it to happen much faster. Mm -hmm. And this idea of going pilot to pivotal, you know, being able to do that um, very quickly using some established methodologies, also some, uh, you know, some computer modeling, um, some, you know, algorithm driven, um, you know, investigations. I mean, there's just, just been a tremendous amount of work on sponsor side and researcher side, everybody, you know, trying to, uh, to figure out what those, you know, what treatments are working. And I did want to also just kind of, you know, inform everybody. I think everybody's really aware what some of the emergency use authorizations that um, haven't gone well. In fact, the, the biggest one I think people were aware of were the chloroquines and the hydroxychloroquines, which actually um, was revoked. There is still an emergency use for uh, convalescent plasma, but the other ones that people may not be aware of, and I think other, the, uh, probably the other one people are very aware of is for remdesivir. Um, but some of the other emergency use authorizations that had to be put into place had more to do with um, with drug shortages or and the need for um, ongoing therapies for people who were dramatically affected um, by COVID, even if indirectly. So, for example, one was a, a renal replacement therapy for people who again are, are dialysis patients. We also had to look at um, additional sedation, uh, you know, sedation for people who have to be sedated in order to be uh, intubated to be mechanically ventilated. So that and and then anticoagulation therapies, you know, so some of these emergency use authorizations are kind of tangential to COVID, but, but again, show the power of what, what can be done uh, when, when you need to address those kinds of situations. So this seems like a good place to pause since we've already covered a lot of ground. We talked about what an emergency use authorization is, how it's being used in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we touched on the activities that are taking place, not only with the FDA, but with sponsors that are conducting ongoing clinical programs. We invite you to join us for part two of this podcast, where we'll continue this conversation. And Nancy, thanks so much for helping us to understand this important regulatory tool and how it's being used as we speak to address different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic.